Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. This episode is part of a limited series featuring CTOs in the greater Seattle area. We will be digging deeper into the challenges, opportunities, innovations, and the future of tech. Who better to lead these conversations than Fuel Talent's very own Albert Squires and Derek Stevens? We hope that you enjoy the CTO limited series of the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is David Wolf. David is the co-founder and CTO of Jet Closing, a tech startup in the real estate space, working to make all digital home closing the new normal. A UW and Stanford computer science graduate, he has worked in the Seattle area tech scene for over 20 years. Prior to Jet Closing, he worked at Amazon, where he ran the team who built the Amazon retail shopping iPhone app used by millions worldwide. He also led teams at other local tech companies like Zone, Motricity, and Infospace. David also happened to be one of Redfin's first customers in 2006 and is passionate about transforming real estate or any lagging industry with modern technology. Welcome, David. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, I've uh, for all of our listeners, I've been uh, lucky enough to work with you uh, both as a candidate and as a client uh, for several years now, and it's just really exciting to see you know, from the Amazon days to where you're at right now, kind of the growth. And I know we'll get into that, but I've, I've just always walked away super impressed and so excited to chat with you today. Well, thank you very much. It's cool. great to be here. Cool. Well, uh, we generally start off with, with rapid fire, so let, let's get right into it. Morning or night person? Night, for sure. Night. So you are the typical software engineer. <laughs> very, very much yeah. so. You know, with, yeah. with kids and, and work and stuff, you have to get up early sometimes. And I get that. I didn't get that in my 20s, but, uh, yeah. but I get that now. Yeah. Um, but definitely left my own devices. I'll sleep in. Totally, totally. What about, uh, I don't know if you're a big reader, but has there been any books uh, that have really impacted you? And, and if not, uh, maybe a class that you took throughout your studies that have impacted you most? Oh, great question. Um, uh, you know, I'm sort of a classic sci-fi uh, nerd. I read a lot of the classic sci-fi and, and uh, interesting stuff uh, more recently. Um, I think a good book I read uh, not too long ago was called Children of Time. Um, and it was about uh, kind of a, a very unexpected twist at um, if uh, if we messed up here on Earth and tried to you know bootstrap ourselves in in outer space. Um, wow. But it, I won't spoil this, the the twists and turns. But it's very interesting. I'll have to check it out. I know you obviously have some have some experience in this world. Masters in computer science versus getting a a BS in computer science and going direct into the workforce. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And um, I kind of made that decision very late. Um, I really enjoyed, you know, my time in the kind of computer engineering department at UW, but I, I sort of found towards the end of my college career that um, computer engineering had a lot of hardware focus, and I was um, kind of liking the software side a lot more. So 
I just kind of made the kind of last minute decision. I'd love to learn more about uh, about computer science and software development and, and that kind of thing. So um, I applied and uh, to a few schools and was lucky enough to get into Stanford and spent uh, some good time doing that. And it was a great decision. Um, you know, I, I learned a ton uh, and ended up um, kind of concentrating in uh, database uh, stuff there um, mm -hmm. as my specialty, which has sort of come in and out of uh, the rest of my career. It's very, very, uh, very interesting subspace, the data side. Yeah. What if you were to build a startup, and I guess you basically did this at uh, Jet Closing, but if you had to do it again, or you had, you know, an unlimited choice, what language would you choose uh, to build your next tech product? Oh, that's a, that's a very loaded question. Uh, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll couch my answers by saying probably de depends on what you're building, because um, yeah. languages are like tools, right? You you have a whole tool bench, and you pick what works for for what best for that particular job. Um, I mean, it, at Jet Closing, we we ended up kind of gravitating really heavily toward JavaScript, both on the front end and the back end, and um, you know, that, and that was really sort of the ground floor for for that startup, and um, kind of in part because it was really a, a, a sort of a dy dynamic, um, well-represented uh, language, both in the front end and the back end. And so you have Node.js on the back end. You have, we had used React Native on the front end. Um, and it just made it you know, easier. And this vibrant community is continuing to develop in those technologies. Um, so you know, definitely want to pick something that, that's kind of li a living language that's yeah. evolving and growing. Um, but th that said, you know, if I was doing data science, you know, I'm sure there's other things I would be yeah, choosing. Or yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. especially with with uh, the prominence of TypeScript, I'm seeing come uh, that that full stack JavaScript is is definitely seems to be the the bulk of what I'm seeing, especially in the startup community now. Yep, definitely. And the tooling has just gotten so much better. Mm -hmm. The tooling and frameworks and infrastructure, it's you know, it keeps evolving and growing. So that that seems a, like a, a strong choice. Right yeah, now. totally. I'm sure everyone's seen your LinkedIn profile and, and you're prominent in the text scene. What is something uh, about you that they wouldn't see on your resume that might surprise somebody? Um, that's a good question. Uh, something that might surprise folks is um, I was the first person uh, to build uh, uh, and uh, to popularize the term Easter egg. Um, that nobody would really think of that. But ba basically, back in 1995, um, I heard this term from a couple of other, uh, you know, friends of mine in the kind of software space uh, about like the, the idea of this hidden thing that uh, programmers put in their software um, that, you know, sort of harmless, interesting, novel, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, kind of like a little signature, kind of like artists hide little signatures in their, uh, or signature, you know, um, inside jokes, that sort of thing in their art. Um, and, and I, they had it, uh, termed as an Easter egg and I never heard that term before. So I actually built a, a website in the early web days, um, about Easter eggs to collect what other people found. And, um, really, I, I don't think that term was in widespread use, uh, until I built that site and it got kind of reasonably popular in the early internet and, uh, now it's all over the place. So, wow. There you go. Life, uh, fa famous blogger. I, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. That was my 15 minutes. There we go. There we go. Well, let's uh, let's go back to the beginning. I mean, were you in to computers right as a kid? What did your family do to kind of cultivate that? Or, or maybe another way uh, to ask is, what is the first computer and how did you use it? 
Yeah. Um, so I always loved computers and, you know, was into kind of interesting computer stuff from a young age. I don't know. I just always found them fascinating. My earliest kind of memory when I was very young was, um, so my, my parents are musicians and music teachers. And, uh, my, I remember my folks brought home, uh, borrowed basically from the, the school they were teaching in a, like a, probably an Apple or Apple II with a program that is a sound interval training. So it basically plays two tones and you're supposed to say, is that, you know, is that a third? Is that a fifth? Is that a, an eighth? Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of ear training. Um, but, you know, I, I think ever since those early days, it was really just, uh, I always gravitated towards uh, electronics and computers and probably got my first computer in ninth grade. Um, and uh, that was kind of a, thinking back in retrospect, that was a big expense for my my family. You know, they yeah. they didn't uh, yeah. they weren't really well to do, very highly educated, but not uh, not really in careers that paid a lot. Um, so that was like a big expense for basically their son, who just was just interested in this stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I really appreciate that that they yeah. did that for me. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And so you pr- knew pretty quickly that you're uh, a fan of this industry. And so that's obviously when you uh, went into computer engineering uh, from there onto Stanford, maybe talk to us a little bit about, about the early career. Um, I'm sure you started out as a software engineer and, and then spin that into a little bit. You know, I think a lot of our listeners are, are in the engineering space and are always curious of that track to dev to CTO. And so what was the, the early career like and what did you focus on? Yeah, no, good question. Um, you know, early in my career, you know, I, I, I did, you know, entry level jobs, you know, QA testing at a voicemail company. Um, some of my internships were uh, with Intel at the data secu- in their data security group. Um, you know, and, and, and I think in those, those days, uh, I think what I focus on and what I would encourage others to focus on is both, you know, just a lot of learning, you know, this is all new to you. So, you know, learn what you can find good mentors, uh, explore these spaces that are, you know, new and interesting. Um, You know, one of the things I remember was, you know, even being just an intern in that data security group at Intel, um, I was one of the more familiar people with Java. Uh, that because that was a brand new emerging language. And so, you know, even as an intern, I was able to really help them develop and and contribute to their emerging kind of standards and APIs around uh, their Java uh, kind of security SDK. Um, And so I thought that was really cool. You know, there's no, there's always opportunities for you to, you know, bring what you have, but, you know, early in your career, you're also just absorbing a lot and trying to kind of, you know, build context. Um, you know, but then after that, I, I, I kind of went uh, straight out of uh, graduation. I went to a startup myself. That, so that was really my fir- first post-college experience was a startup. Um, and that was uh, very educational from a different perspective in that uh, it was a startup I hated working at or, you know, ended up <laughs> ha- hating, hating, hating being there, right? Um, don't have to go into all the details, but but that said, I still learned a ton. So you know, you you learn stuff uh, being one of a, a very small team, really you know high uh, high levels of accountability and ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that I feel really lucky to have had early in my career um, because that that ends up being so important um, later in your career to kind of getting to those manager, you know, director, whatever leadership positions is. You know, if I had to point to just one or two things, it would be really those 
uh, elements of being accountable, um, being an owner, um, not just, you know, a contributor, but really, you know, caring and, and, and kind of shepherding things to completion um, and maintaining them once they're, they're done. Yeah. Um, you know, you think things are done uh, sometimes as a software developer, but, you know, th- th- those of us who've been here in this industry a long time know everything has a, a, a any good software has a very long life and it changes throughout that life. And so, you know, being an owner is really critical. Yeah. So I know DevOps has changed this somewhat, but uh, taking out of the tech, just the don't throw it over the wall, have this this deep care for kind of what it looks like in production or what the bugs look like, et cetera, et cetera. And can even spin that uh, into personal relationships. So uh, one of the things I've always asked is once you made that, that jump into your first line manager role, it sounds like because you cared, you took ownership, uh, you're obsessed with quality. What, what recommendations would you have for frontline managers? I mean, looking at your career, do you see any, characteristics of frontline managers, um, whether it's yourself or other leaders uh, now that help them A, become great frontline managers and B, lay the the foundation to take that next step. Yeah. well, definitely the the ownership piece is is very important. I think at all levels, and so you know having having high ownership really helps helps grow your career. But on top of that, you know realize that being a manager of people is different from being an individual contributor. Like it is a different job. And so, you know, bring, bringing in all these other skills that maybe as an individual software developer, you haven't had to hone as much like communication, like, um, you know, caring about your employees, understanding what motivates them, um, how, how to kind of stru- create structure for them to work together well, for them to work, you know, well with external partners, um, for their own career growth, you know, mentorship, coaching, uh, kind of constant feedback. Um, that's the stuff that I learned at the, that, um, you know, the first couple manager jobs as being really critical. And, you know, also elements of um, situational leadership, uh, I thought were very valuable. So for example, what I mean by that is, you know, say you have um, a very junior person on your team and a very senior person on your team. The way you manage them is going to be very different to be an effective manager. Like the, the junior person is going to need a lot more kind of hands-on attention, uh, you know, di- specific direction, a lot more specific feedback where the, the senior engineer is going to want to be delegated to, right? They, yeah. they, want, they, they, they want to have your trust and, you know, essentially I got this, I'll take care of things um, as, as a simple example. Um, but all of that is sort of a whole different skill set that, you know, you don't learn in uh, programming class. It's, right. it's a lot more communication, social dynamics, um, that side of the coin. Totally. Looking back on, on your career for somebody who uh, wants to be a CTO, as you've looked past all of your uh, leadership and your growth, what, what do you wish you would have maybe focused on more or what recommendations do you have to somebody whose ultimate goal is to become a CTO? Yeah. Um, well, for, for me, you know, part of my decision about wanting to kind of accept this role uh, because, you know, it is a lot of responsibilities is really being ready for that level of both risk and responsibility. I mean, the CTO role is not the same at, at every company. So CTO right. at a startup versus CTO at a large company, very different roles. But 
Um, for me, you know, that was a key piece is, am I willing to kind of be in that spot? Um, and everybody really should take a very hard look. It's not just another promotion, right? You're, you're sort of the ultimate uh, accountability for your technical organization. Um, that's a lot of pressure. Um, but, you know, I'd also, I'd also say, you know, do you, do you feel you're ready to, for this role in that, you know, do you feel like you have had a, a broad and deep enough set of experience um, that when you get put in this role of like really having to make essentially company impacting decisions um, on a regular basis, um, do you feel prepared for that? <laughs> and, yeah. and do you have enough experience to draw on for that? Because, you know, that's, uh, that's tough. Um, and, and, and I just encourage everybody to think about that for themselves. Uh, you know, and, and again, I say like CTO of, uh, of your own startup, well, you're going to learn by the seat of your pants anyway. Um, right. but, but realize what you're going into and, uh, and what the needs of that job are. Uh, another good thing to think about is, you know, how much of a, of a translator you're going to need to be, um, between different parts of your company, between your company and others, um, you know, sometimes the CTO role has a, a large sales element too. Right. Um, so really kind of feel out what those different responsibilities are going to be uh, for the CTO role in your company. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think my last question that's just kind of coming to me before we get into some of the uh, bigger conversation topics is, what would you recommend? Uh, I, I speak with engineers all the time that are at Amazon, that are at Facebook, who are considering making that jump to a venture-backed startup, early stage, seed, series A, somewhere around there. What are some of the considerations uh, you took in into play? I mean, obviously, the compensation structures are totally different. The, the supports, I mean, it's just night and day different. Do you have any recommendations on what to analyze or, or levers to look at um, as, it, as it relates to should I go big company or early stage? Yeah, um, it, it's a very personal decision, first of all. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's something that, that I learned very early from that startup that, uh, that I didn't like being in so much um, is, you know, what do I want next for, for my, uh, both where I am in my life and also where I am in my career and where I want to grow. Um, you know, I think that's something I, I probably didn't realize uh, as early as I could is, you know, sort of how much control you have over your own career. You know, and all these decisions you make is essentially steering your own ship. And so realize that you, you do have a lot of control. Um, and so, you know, what is it uh, that it interests you? Because you've got to be interested in, in what you're doing. You know, it's not just another job. Um, you got to really care about this and have the personal connection. Um, so, you know, start there um, and then also kind of evaluate what you're bringing to the table um, to this role or this company because uh, everybody's got different experience and, you know, ideally you want to find something that's a good fit both for you in sort of the next thing you're looking for and that you are bringing a lot to that situation um, that is relatively unique. Um, and that, that's sort of the best fit in my eyes. Yeah, 100%. That makes total sense. So jumping into your, your current uh, role, you've been with Jet Closing for five years, is that right? Almost five years. Yep, that's right. Wow, time flies. Tell tell us a little bit about how you approach um, scaling an organization through different venture rounds. If you were talking to somebody who's um, had just spun out of a uh, incubation lab, what are some of the focus areas that you really 
drive towards or looking back you wish you would have driven to? And then how has that changed as you've uh, scaled in series? Yeah, uh, great question. So um, I think one of the things I've tried to do kind of consistently over that time is, you know, make you try, we want to make decisions, short-term decisions that get you to whatever that next level is, um, such as, you know, a, a revenue target or a particular kind of feature milestone or, or, or answering a really important business question that you need to prove as a startup, you know. Like a product market fit, for example. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, you're going to, when you're small, you don't have a lot of resources and you want to move fast. So you, you're going to have to make some short-term decisions that, you wouldn't make five years later when you're much bigger. And so uh, the key thing for me is trying to make those uh, smartly so that you're not really saddling yourself with a ball and chain that you're going to have to get rid of later, but that you'll be able to easily pivot when you want to do something different. Um, And also try to make kind of the, the fundamental architecture decisions smart so that you're directionally right most of the time. Um, Cause that just, over time, that gets rid of so much wasted effort. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're all constantly re-engineering stuff that you, you know, took a, a Band-Aid here, a shortcut there, um, it, it gets really, uh, it, it really draws back your acceleration uh, as a company. So yeah. That's, yeah. that's something I'd advise. I mean, a, a CTO role is, is part fundraising, part recruiter, part software engineering, part you know, business and, and product management how especially with covid coming on uh, over the last 18 months how have you focused on recruiting and and the culture and maybe a follow-up question would would be how do you keep a strong culture when when the the team is not in the office and have that ability to connect have you had to change the organization and the processes at all yeah great question i mean it is hard um to i think the culture is one of the hardest things um you know being being physically in the same space it's it there are elements of collaboration and culture that are uh, much much easier um but that said you know i feel fortunate that again kind of going back to some of those early decisions we we made decisions early that actually made uh flexible work um easy and possible for for our team and so then when COVID hit, uh, basically everybody just went remote and we were an essential business. So we, we can and did stay open through all of that um, as a business. Um, but fortunately, we were able to sort of diversify and go remote and, and still be fully operational really from day one. Um, but I think now that we've been living with this for a while, um, there's, there's definitely pros and cons uh, to, to that for different job roles, for different functions. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're really trying to maintain as much of the culture, company culture as we can in the distributed environment. But, uh, you know, from a development and de- developer productivity standpoint, I think it's been just as good, if not maybe even slightly better. Interesting. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but we've really been kind of leveraging that for us uh, on the hiring front because we have that flexibility. And I know, especially now, some companies are really pushing the return to office, especially traditional industries that are, you know, want to kind of go back to traditional ways. Um, and I know we've, we've reaped the benefits of that a little bit by um, just this week, we, we hired a, a closer um, from, from another company because they were forcing them to all go back mm-hmm. to the office, mm-hmm. you know, full time. 
And uh, they were just like, hey, I, all I want is some flexibility. Can I work for you guys? And like, yep. Nice, nice, awesome. <laughs> yeah, a couple of years ago, I, I gave a uh, presentation or a talk uh, titled David vs. Goliath. And it was how the startup community can compete against the Amazon, Facebook, Google, who are putting together these massive offers. And, and so what has been your approach? I mean, I think any, especially in today's uh, hyper competitive market, being able to attract talent is, is critical. And when you're a really stage startup where you don't have the maybe the base salaries and obviously the RSUs, you really have to sell a vision. What do you see uh, has been the key to letting you scale at Jet Closing? And you know, what does the future of talent acquisition looks like look like as more and more of these big companies are coming into Seattle trying to compete for the talent here? Yeah, it's um, a, a startup is always going to have a, a unique value proposition relative to a big company. Um, you're going to be smaller. Uh, the, the things that I think um, really people appreciate or develop, I'll, I'll speak for developers in particular, um, that they can get at a small company is that perspective and, and sort of level of involvement uh, across a bunch of different you know, technologies and business decisions. It's really hard to get at a, at a large company. I mean, at a large company, you're going to be uh, in a very specific job doing a very specific thing uh, and so it can sometimes be hard to bubble up beyond that. So, you know, if you want uh, more visibility and more access to decision making, um, that's something, you know, I, I would recommend any growing um, developer or manager, you know, get as part of their career experience is, you know, you need to be you need to have access to where decisions are being made so you can learn um, what's going into those decisions uh, so you can expand your own thinking and, you know, kind of start to do that yourself more. Um, and that can be just hard in larger organizations. Do you, as, as a recruiting leader, focus more on that value proposition when trying to attract talent? Or do you focus maybe on, on some of the technical problems or... Uh, is it more around selling the equity and the vision of the equity and the, the obviously the exit potential? Uh, I'm guessing it's a little bit of all of it, but didn't know if you had uh, recommendations in, in that space. Yeah, it, it's definitely all of it. Uh, you know, you've got the company vision and, you know, I think the people that are most excited to work with us are the ones who, you know, buy into our company vision um, and really, you know, care about making the difference we're trying to make. Uh, but on top of that, you know, you really care about who you're working with and what you're working on. Um, and so that's another advantage with a, you know, a, a young company or a small startup is you, you, you're, you're being interviewed by the people you're going to work with, um, not just some other team or, you know, folks you're not sure about. So, so you, they get to know uh, who they're going to be working with a little bit better. And also just the direct access to more modern technology. I think that's, that's another, another advantage startups have is, is, you're, it's more greenfield just in general. So yeah. everything's going to be younger, newer, uh, and they'll have a, an ability to really own stuff very quickly uh, and hopefully not work with a lot of legacy technology, but work with actually emerging technology, um, which again is valuable for career development. Um, and generally people are just more personally interested in that. Like when you yeah. say, hey, yeah. I got, uh, I'll give you a great example. So when I, um, when I had to choose between going to Amazon to work at the, at, at, on the iPhone app, or at the same day, I had an offer from Microsoft to go work in Microsoft Office, um, but it was to develop 
the OneNote uh, version for Symbian. Does anybody remember Symbian? <laughs> it was a it was a OS. Uh, there was this partnership with Nokia and Microsoft um, to build these these Symbian phones, but it was dying. Um, yeah. Even then, it was it was on the way out. And so, you know, again, that was a very, very clear cut decision for me. It's like, do you pick the thing that's going forward or the thing that's dying? I want to learn and work with the thing that's going forward, which, right. you know, the iPhone at the time was very uh, kind of at the cusp of being like super popular. And, and yeah. I could see yeah. that. So that, that's that's why you want to join a, a young company uh, doing stuff like that. I'm hearing, you know, throughout uh, this conversation that, your growth heavily, obviously having the strong fundamentals. I mean, that that's kind of a given, but follow your passion and then dive into it and care about it full spectrum. And that will inevitably create growth. Moving to a CTO role might not have been the focus. I'm, I'm looking for that perfect next step to get my resume to a certain degree, but I want to solve complex greenfield problems in industries that I care about and the results will come. That's right. That's right. Follow your curiosity. Um, I think that's that's what I've always uh, looked at for myself. Yeah, cool. Well, let's let's pivot real quick and chat a little bit about machine learning. Obviously, MLAI is a huge push uh, across all companies, it seems. There's obviously a, a big spectrum. You know, some people are putting some basic statistics on, on it and calling it uh, machine learning. And, and some companies are investing heavily on building the ML infrastructure that you're obviously in the data infrastructure that you're going to need to be able to apply those models to what, what's kind of your vision of, of where things are at and where they're going. And, and uh, if it's always makes sense to start investing in machine learning and AI. Yeah, this is a really exciting and, and rapidly growing space for sure. Um, I mean, you can tell just by going to say, AWS reInvent uh, that mm -hmm. you know Microsoft is just pouring resources into SageMaker and you know uh, all sorts of other uh, infrastructure around AI and ML. Um, I think with the goal of really um, making it more accessible to the average developer and development team, rather than uh, having to have a specialized data scientist, you know, have the specialized role. Nobody really understands what they do or how they're doing it. If, if they can create tools and infrastructure that uh, makes it easy for the average developer to solve problems with ML and AI, um, then they've won um, because the stuff also tends to be very computation intensive. So it's a win-win for them, right? They get more uh, more AWS spend uh, by solving these problems. Yeah. Um, but you know, that said, I think it's good to understand enough about what these systems are capable of doing to really formulate what problems of yours are a good fit. Because um, you know, everybody loves to throw these buzzwords around, and. and right. Of course, they can solve a lot of very interesting problems, but you, you know, realistically, you have to figure out well what problems for me do uh, should be solved via machine learning. Um, uh, so, what we've looked into so far at, at my current company is really around you know, kind of we deal with a lot of documents and kind of uh, you know structured but not you know formally structured data so like uh you know you get a, a lot of bank statements and these you know things that are often have very similar information in them but there is no standard format for them for example mm. yeah. um and so th those are that's a great body of stuff to use machine learning for because you can train on it uh, essentially we have a lot of documents 
uh, you know, that we process on a daily basis and now years of history. So we can use that as a, a data source to train models to identify important information, classify documents uh, appropriately, um, and really sort of expedite the, the workflow and processing of, of all that communication that happens back and forth. Um, and so, so that's some of the things that I would say to think about is, you know, it, machine learning, for example, is only as good as the data you can train on. Who's the first hire if you're going to start a team? Well, great question. And, and I think it really does depend on the problem you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, uh, some of these problems um, that we are trying to solve right now in the document space, uh, there are actually commodity technologies coming out that are relatively easy for developers to leverage and, and train with uh, and customize to solve some of these problems. And so that's that's where we are. We decided not to hire a data scientist. Um, but instead, really just do a short-term contract with an experienced uh, data science developer, ML developer, to essentially bootstrap our technology and our development team um, so that we're sort of pointed in the right direction, uh, you know, and then can go from there. And that's been really helpful for us. Um, but that said, you know, it, if you're really building custom models, if, if some of these machine learning and AI problems are core to what you're trying to solve and there's nothing commodity out there, yeah, you're probably going to have to go down that that route and and get some smart data scientists uh, on your team to figure out what you even need to build. It sounds like stick with you know follow the business problem first and and yep. stick with your core competencies. I mean, if if there's something you can, but it's the whole buyer build type of question. But I'm sure yep. in a, a young startup without unlimited resources, you need to look at that trade off, and maybe it makes sense to uh, bring it off the shelf at first. Yep, exactly. And then, uh, you know, something else I'd say for folks out there um, who are thinking about dabbling with machine learning is, you know, the data is so critical. So think about what data you would need to train on. And do you have that data? Do you need to prepare that data or have it tagged or, or, you know, customized in some way to to bootstrap your machine learning? Because the reality is sometimes that can actually be the hardest, uh, most time consuming thing Mm, is getting the data that you need and getting it in the right place and format to right. do stuff with. Totally. Well, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, your current company and, and want to give you a chance to plug uh, what your hiring needs are. You know, I think we have 50,000 listeners um, and hopefully a lot of them are software engineers that are excited about what you guys are, are building. What do you uh, foresee the hiring uh, future look like at Jet Closing? Yeah, well, um, so at Jet Closing, for those who don't know, um, we're uh, – basically a a young company trying to make digital closings the new normal. Um, So this is part of the home purchase that's at the end of the road. Um, The buyer and seller have agreed you need to go to title and escrow to actually move all the money, handle all the liens, judgments, uh, do the title insurance, and kind of get the keys into your hand at the end of it all. Um, and that's just real, a really lagging industry. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who's bought a home probably has uh, has realized well, hundreds this. of pay. I mean, how many trees do we chop down every time you do a refinance? It's crazy. <laughs> yep, and the in-person signings and yes. careering. It's it's uh, it's terrible. It's it's something that needs to be brought into the modern world. So yeah, that's and expensive. Doing. And expensive. Yes, exactly. So um, that's what we're doing. Um, we operate in several states uh, and growing. Uh, and really, we're using technology to streamline that both for customers by giving them a lot more access than is typical to information and communication through mobile and web apps, 
um, but also behind the scenes with, you know, really innovative technology like machine learning and, and other things uh, from a process perspective and a tools perspective, uh, just to make this uh, possible and streamlined and easy uh, and all digital. And that's been really especially important of, of late, um, being mm -hmm. able to not have to go in anywhere to sign or to do everything electronically. Um, and that's what we were founded on. 100%. And so would you recommend somebody go to jetclosing.com and, and do the career pages there? or You got it. Uh, we have our, all our jobs listed and always looking for, for great developers. So uh, awesome. come join my team. Awesome. Well, final question. Uh, what what fuels you? You know, what, what gets you out of bed? Uh, why do you do what you do? Yeah, I've always really um, enjoyed trying to understand how things work. Um, so it, it's really that drive to understand, I think, that, that fuels me. Um, and then, you know, secondarily, I, I, I love finding ways to cut out needless hassle and effort um, for people. Uh, so that's what we're trying to do at Jet Closing, but I think that's what I've tried to do everywhere uh, I've worked. And I think that's it, – it's really just about make, giving you your life back, really, mm. when you cut out the stuff that nobody wants to do or deal with. Uh, it lets you do other things that, that are really important to you. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.